Shalom, shalom, friends. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're happy to have you all here with us for this very special program, Torah Im Derech Eretz, Torah with the Way of the Land, the legacy of German Judaism and some questions for ethically engaged Jews today with Professor Paul Franks. We are thrilled to have him here with us today here uh, to learn and we look forward to learning from him and to hearing questions and um, and engagement from you. Professor Paul Franks is the Robert F. and Patricia Ross Weiss Professor of Philosophy and Judaic Studies at Yale University. He grew up in the Northeast of England and was educated at Gateshead Yeshiva, Oxford and Harvard. He teaches and writes about Kantian and post-Kantian metaphysics, epistemology and philosophy of religion, as well as Jewish philosophy. And he is proud of his German Jewish heritage. Professor Franks, I've heard great things about you for years, and I'm thrilled we can be here to learn with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, second best only to being with all of you in person. So I'm going to share my screen with you. And uh, okay, hopefully that is that is working. So yes, Torah im Derech Eretz which I'm translating here for reasons that we'll get to in quite a literal way as Torah with the way of the land. So it might help first to start by saying what I mean by German Judaism. And I mean the sort or sorts of Judaism that develop in the German speaking lands from the publication in 1783 of Nativot HaShalom, the translation into high German written in Hebrew letters, along with a Hebrew commentary by Moses Mendelssohn, who was known to his Jewish contemporaries as Rav Moshe Dessau, Ramad, and his collaborators. And the importance of, of this for, for the starting of what I'm calling German Judaism is the use of high German as the language, not Yiddish, not the specifically Jewish dialect into which translations had been carried out before. So this really uh, marks the, the beginning of Jewish participation in a German cultural project. So before there's a German uh, political project uh, of unifying the German speaking lands and having a single state, which eventually ends up uh, being what we know as Germany under the leadership of Prussia. Uh, long before that, there is the idea of a kind of cultural unification and the use of a common version of German. German is a very uh, regional language. It differs uh, from region to region. And Jewish dialect Yiddish was just you know, one of, of many, many dialects. So at that time in the 1780s, you've got still a, a pretty small number of Jews, mainly in Berlin, who are bringing up their children to speak German and not Yiddish, or maybe German as well as Yiddish. It's quite unusual. And the publication of this translation is, is a landmark. And so from 1783, until the destruction of Jewish lives, synagogues, and property 
followed by the actual prohibition of Jewish communal life uh, on and after the 9th of November, 1938. That's known often as Kristallnacht, but it's better to call it, I think, the pogrom of November, 1938. Uh, I know that the, the term Kristallnacht referring to the breaking of glass is still quite common in American usage, but in Germany, it's really been left behind. It's thought as a, of as a, a somewhat trivializing term that emphasizes the glass rather than the destruction, as I say, of lives, synagogues, property, and ultimately of Jewish communal existence. Um, so from 1783 to 1938, that's what I'm calling German Judaism. And I should say that I'm really focusing on one of the great ideas of German Judaism, uh, namely uh, Torem Derech Eretz, but in the 19th century, there are really two, and this would have to be a different class, um, uh, ethical monotheism, whose greatest exemplar, I think, is the philosopher Hermann Cohen, and then Torah in Derek Eretz, Torah along with the way of the land. And if I were to add, those are the, in the 19th century, uh, if I were to add um, something slightly later, perhaps we could add a third great idea, which would be the idea of dialogical thought developed by Franz Rosenzweig and Martin Buber. But in any event, in sort of, in, in, in the the main part of German Judaism, it's these two ideas, and I'm just going to focus on, on one of them. So Torah, along with the way of the land, is mostly thought of, and rightly so, as developed by of Shamshan Raphael Hirsch, who lived from 1808 to 1888. And I think it's important to recognize that his life was very much caught up in the struggle for Jewish civil rights. And formally speaking, the, 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 the culmination of that struggle was on April the 22nd, 1871. So now Germany has been unified. There is now a German Reich, an empire. And this is the day when the law was passed that recognized the rights of Jews in the last region of Germany where they were to be recognized, which was Bavaria. It happens to be where my family is from. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a very gradual story across the course of the 19th century, starting with the Napoleonic invasion of Germany and the imposition by the various Napoleonic uh, governments of um, civil rights for Jews. Uh, that had the unfortunate effect, I think, of making it look like a, a French imposition. But in any event, um, gradually, after um, some backlash in various places, you know, rights were recognized and then retracted, and then they were recognized again in some places. Um, but eventually, by 1871, you have Jews being recognized as full citizens throughout the new uh, German Reich. And within the Jewish community during that period of time, there's a significant amount of of change. Um, no doubt there are some changes in personal religious observance. It's very hard to measure that. All the evidence would be anecdotal. But what we do know about is the struggle over the appropriate, appropriate amount of change, mainly in public worship, you know, in what a shul should look like, in how a service should be conducted, and so on. Um, now, I should say that from a contemporary point of view, a lot of the changes over which there was struggle during that period of time look fairly trivial today. Um, that there, there, there was 
not a massive change in the uh, text, for example. Um, and those who had more extreme ideas about changing um, Jewish law and so on, actually ended up mostly leaving Germany and coming to the United States. <laughs> uh, in the United States, it was possible to implement a reform program because the, there was very little in the way of Jewish establishment. And uh, also because there, you didn't have to involve the government in it. And one of the major features of Jew German Jewish life is that uh, the government was involved. In each locality in Germany, there was a single, where there was a Jewish community, there was a single Jewish community that was recognized by the government. And it was funded by taxation uh, that was part of the governmental system. And that's the way things had been for a very long time. That was the way established Jewish life worked. So if you wanted to make changes, you had to make the changes to the existing government recognized structure of the community and its practice within that region. Uh, you did not have uh, the same kind of freedom to make changes or to set up your own shul that people had, say, in the United States at the same time. Uh, and, and this was of great importance, for example, to Rav Hirsch, um, because he felt that the completion of the recognition of Jewish civil rights did not come in 1871. It wasn't enough that each individual Jew was counted as um, a, a citizen. What he also thought was very important was the freedom of each Jew to join a synagogue that uh, reflected the view that they considered correct. Uh, and, and he had a, a long political struggle for that, which culminated a little bit later in 1876, when a law was passed that allowed, at least within uh, Prussia, uh, allowed um, Jews to leave the Jewish community that was already established and, and without converting to Christianity. That's the only other way you could have left the Jewish community before. And, and then to join or to form a synagogue of their own, which would still be government recognized and so on, but they could form their own. So that's gonna be a very important part of the, of, of the story here. But I think that there are two major misconceptions about this idea of Torah im derech which I would like to clear up. And I'm gonna spend most of my time on the first one and a little bit of time on the second. The first misconception is that Torah im derech the worldview of Torah along with the way of the land was primarily an educational philosophy and that it concerns the incorporation of secular studies into the curriculum. I think this is an extremely widespread misconception. Uh, and for example, I note that in the uh, period between the two world wars during the 20th century, Rav Shimon Schwab, who came from Frankfurt and grew up in, in, in the uh, community that Rav Hirsch had been, uh, where he had been the rabbi, um, Rav Schwab, who much later would become the rabbi of Adas Yishurin, the transplanted Frankfurt Shul that is to this day in New York, um, Rav Schwab had gone to study in the Lithuanian yeshivas, and he put to the major Russia yeshiva and, and some of the Hasidish rebbeim of Eastern Europe the question whether Rav Hirsch's ideology of Torah in Derek Eretz was 
kosher or not? And he received some very interesting responses. But all of those responses from really major Jewish figures in Eastern Europe concern the educational question. And they don't really get to the heart of the matter at all. Um, I'm going to argue that Torah in Derech Eretz, Torah along with the way of the land, is primarily a political philosophy. Only secondarily is it an educational philosophy. It does have educational implications, but the political core must be understood first. So that's, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time uh, contesting this misconception. Second is the misconception that Torah in Derech Eretz is to be identified with the worldview of Rav Hirsch alone. And in particular, Rav Hirsch has a commitment, very strong commitment, to what I will call ideological purity. And from that follows his commitment to separatism. Rav Hirsch believed that the only true Jewish community is one that is ideologically pure. It is committed without any impurity whatsoever to the sovereignty of the Torah. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. And therefore, if you are paying dues to a community that is impure, if it, it does not have a pure commitment to the sovereignty of the Torah, uh, it's in some way tainted by, um, uh, by uh, um, a lack of commitment, then you must, you're obliged to separate from it. And it's in the service of that view that Rav Hirsch fought for decades for the law that was passed in 1876, the Auschwitz Gazettes, the separation law that allowed Jews to separate from one community and form their own Jewish community. Uh, so there are really two sides to his view. The way I presented it a few minutes ago was the way that Rav Hirsch argued for it politically in the German context. That is, it has to do with freedom of conscience. That, you know, it, and that sounds pretty good, um, you know, that a Jew should be free to choose the kind of synagogue that reflects uh, their particular version of Judaism. But Rav Hirsch's actual view is not quite the same as that. His actual view is that there's a, a proper way of, uh, 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 of understanding Judaism, and there's the proper community that expresses it. And it's not that you should be free to join such a community, but rather that you are obliged to do so. And that, that is really the core of his, of, of his view here, which I'm calling uh, ideological purity. Um, as we're going to see, Rav, Hirsch, Rav Hirsch's view was contested by other major rabbis of Germany who also endorsed Torah and Derech Eretz, but they didn't agree with this view. Rav Hirsch thought that this followed from Torah and Derech Eretz, and it's central to his interpretation of it. They thought it did not follow. And I'm sympathetic to that view, and I'm going to try to argue for it. But we, there's a reason why there's this misconception. It's because Rav Hirsch is the main writer and thinker who articulated the worldview of Torah in Derech Eretz. So he articulated it according to his interpretation. And other figures like Rav Hildesheimer, Rav Bamberger, and others who I'll mention later, they did amazing things. They built institutions, they wrote books, they taught, and so on. They had students. But they did not articulate 
the hashkafa, the ideology of Torah and Derek as they understood it. They didn't do it in the same way that Hirsch did. And therefore, their, their view, although it was more important in terms of numbers than Rav Hirsch's, their view tends to be forgotten today. In terms of numbers, the majority of Orthodox Jews in Germany um, were not followers of Rav Hirsch. And even the members of his own shul, much to his um, uh, extreme disappointment, did not agree with him about separatism. And he thought that this was central to Torah and Derek Eretz, and I'm going to try to show why it isn't, or why it might not be. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the first of these misconceptions. That is to say, I'm going to try to argue that Torah and Derek Eretz is not primarily an educational view, it's primarily a political view, and if, uh, from which educational consequences follow. So let's start by looking at the source here, which is the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, chapter 2. This is where the phrase comes from. Rabban Gamliel, Benosha Rabbi Yehuda Anasi Omer, um, Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, said, Yafeh Talmud Torah in Derecheretz. Excellent is the study of the Torah along with the way of the land. Because the toil in, in them both keeps sin out of one's mind. And any Torah that is not combined with work, in the end it comes to be neglected and becomes the cause of sin. So I'm not going to read out the rest of, of the Mishnah, but the question is, what does the term Derech Eretz mean here? What does it mean, the way of the land? Uh, in order to understand what's novel in Rav Hirsch's view, we have to look also at what people before had said about this term. So what is the way of the land here? Well, the, probably the standard view, which makes a lot of sense if, if you look at the Mishnah, the way we just read it, is that the way of the land just means work. It means uh, whatever you have to do to earn a livelihood. And there seems to be a parallelism, if you read it that way, between the term derech eretz and the term malacha, right? So that, uh, which would mean work. And in that case, this Mishnah would be part of a, a debate that you find elsewhere in Chazal, elsewhere in rabbinic literature about what sort of balance one should have between Torah study and earning a livelihood. So for example, the Mid Midrash Shmuel, which is one of the main commentaries on Pergelvas, identifies the two. Um, now, it's also true, however, that in some rabbinic texts, we know that the term derech eretz means something slightly different. It means proper behavior. Uh, so here's an example from the Masechet derech eretz rabbah. The olom ali kanes adam pitam leves chavero. A person should never enter someone else's house suddenly. Uh, and we should learn the way of the land from God, from the omnipresent, who stood at the entrance of the Garden of Eden and called out to Adam. So, you know, it's as if God was knocking on the door. Right? So there, Derek Heretz has nothing to do with making uh, a living. It has nothing to do with malacha, nothing to do with work. It clearly means proper behavior. So, 
is there some way to connect the notion of Derech Eretz in Pirkei Avos, chapter two, Mishnah two, with the notion of proper behavior? Well, we find that such connection is made, as far as I know, for the first time, by somebody whom we know was greatly admired in Rav Hirsch's family. And that is the person pictured in the, the top uh, left-hand uh, picture here, which is Rav Naftali Hertz Vesely. And he was one of uh, Mendelssohn's uh, closest collaborators. And he was greatly admired, for example, by Rav Hirsch's grandfather, who is the uh, the, uh, the person pictured in the picture below. Rav Hirsch's grandfather was Rav Mendel Frankfurter. He was the of Besden of Altona in the Hamburg area. And uh, he also, by the way, founded a school, the slogan of which was Talmud Torah, it was Talmud Torah im Derecheretz. And in his ethical will, for example, um, Rav Mendel Frankfurter says that of all of the modern writers, only Rav Naftali Hertz Vesely was really worth reading. Vesely is, 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 is a controversial figure uh, for various reasons that I'm, I, I, I can leave for discussion if anybody wants to know about it, but um, still considered controversial in some, in some areas uh, because of the way in which he advocated for the um, German translation, which I mentioned before, in which he himself participated because he recommended that Jews accept this and start teaching German rather than Yiddish in the schools. Um, he became very controversial, not in the West, but in Eastern Europe. So he also wrote a commentary on Perke Avos called Yain Levanon. And here's what he says. The way of the land includes the business dealings of human beings. That's the interpretation that we've seen already. But also the behavior of people with one another. And the way in which you should behave uh, with your spouse and your family and so on. It includes manners and political wisdom. Right? So social and political norms, the right ways to behave. He includes both, right? It's, it's the livelihood, uh, but it's also the proper way to behave. And this is certainly something that Rav Hirsch would have known. But Rav Vestley does not explain how these things fit together. And Rav Hirsch's absolutely brilliant explanation does. Uh, he doesn't publish this during his lifetime, but the, his uh, edition of the Siddur came out after his death, 1895. And I think it's very interesting that he translates the term Derech Eretz as, to use the German phrase, Bürgerliche Geschäftstätigkeit, civil activity, right? The activity that pertains to a citizen. And he comments as follows. Derek Eretz encompasses everything that emerges from and is conditioned by the fact that the human must accomplish his existence, his vocation, and his coexistence with others on the earth and through the means and conditions to be given by the earth. Right? So Eretz, because we share the earth with other people. Accordingly, Derek Eretz primarily signifies, he says, ways of earning a living and of organizing civil life and also the ethical norms and considerations of courtesy and propriety called forth by coexistence, as well as everything pertaining to universal human and civil 
formation. The word there is Bildung, something like um, character formation. I think this is a, a brilliant explanation. It builds on what Rav Vesely had, had said, but it puts it all together, right? It's called Derech Eretz because we share the land with other people, uh, Jews and non-Jews. And all the ways in which we earn a living from the land and in which we have to organize ourselves so that we get along with one another, that's what's called Derech Eretz. So that's why it includes both the way in which you make a living and the way in which you organize your existence with other people, courtesy, propriety, ethics, and generally speaking, civil activity. That's a primarily political notion, right? We share the land and we have to uh, be part of a common life with those who are our neighbors. And it includes non-Jews as well. And it means that Jews are part of the civil life of the land where they reside. That's the primary idea of Torah in Derech Eretz. For Rav Hirsch, it's the political notion that Jews participate in what he calls here universal human and civil formation. Now, that certainly has educational implications, right? Because if you need a high school education or you need a university education in order to participate in civil life, then that's going to be important for a Jew. Um, but the, it's not primarily an educational idea at all. The, the notion here is building formation of character, not education in a strictly uh, curricular classroom sense. Uh, so we have the idea of the character formation required for civil life, for a contribution that we Jews should make to the life lived by those who share a specific region of land and who live through what is given by this land. That, I think, is Rav Hirsch's core notion. And I think that's why when he first used the slogan Torah and Derek Eretz in 1844, Rav Hirsch did connect it to the need for schools and teacher training seminaries that combine Torah with the way of the land. His thought was not that it was a primarily educational slogan, but rather it's a primarily ethical and political uh, program. Jewish youth will be able to participate in civil life only if they have the requisite character formation, which involves but is not exhausted by the appropriate education. And that education will have to involve not only Jewish, but also universal values. And the traditional Jewish education in Germany as elsewhere Rav Hirschfeld did not promulgate and teach universal values. The school that, in which he was educated in, in Hamburg, which uh, was founded by his grandfather, among others, did try to teach universal values. Um, so I think what's important here is that uh, what we need is not just a curriculum, but an ideal of the human being. Right? And in fact, that's what Rav Hirsch gives us. It's what he calls using the German, der Menschisroel. It's very difficult to translate that. It's literally the human Israelite. Uh, sometimes people translate it, uh, in, it by using a Latin phrase, homo Israelis. Um, not, that is to say, a different species of human, but a sort of ideal type of the, of the human being. And Hirsch is very clear that this would be someone who actualizes the highest capacities universal to the human being. 
but who does so in virtue of their Judaism. And here's a, a wonderful quotation from an essay of his called Religion Allied to Progress from 1854. The more Judaism comprises the whole of man and extends its declared mission to the salvation of the whole of mankind, the less it is possible to confine its outlook to the four cubits of a synagogue and the four walls of a study. The more the Jew is a Jew, the more universalist will his views and aspirations be. The less aloof will he be from anything that is noble and good, true and upright in art, science, in culture or education, and so on. I won't read the rest of it, but the, the picture is that you know, Judaism is not some particular thing. Judaism is the way in which the universal human values can be realized. So you might think, well, um, what then is the importance of there being a particular Jewish people? In his absolutely brilliant commentary on, on the Chumash, on the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, um, Hirsch, I think, gives a, a wonderful account of this. Uh, he's, he's commenting here on a pasuk from Bereshis uh, when uh, the human being is exiled from the Garden of Eden, and God puts uh, between uh, the human being and the Garden of Eden two obstacles, the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turns each way so that they can't return. So what is the meaning of this? Why can they not return? Here's Hirsch's explanation. Culture begins the education of humanity and the Torah completes it. The Torah is human education in its consummate form. The fig leaf and the apron, the first signs of culture began the education of man and the culture that is subordinated to morality is the first stage of man's return to God. In the case of Israel, Derek Eretz and the Torah are tied together. In the house of Israel, the perfect human being and the perfect Jew are identical concepts. In the development of humanity, however, culture precedes Torah. The sword and the cherubim, which he takes to represent suffering on the one hand, that's the sword, and the intuitive perception of a higher being will guide mankind to the path of culture, which leads to the tree of life. So these are not obstacles from Hirsch's point of view so much as um, markers of what we need to achieve in order to return to the garden. Hence, the Jews should cherish all that is good and true in culture, and by their personal appearance and demeanor as a cultivated human being, demonstrate that to be a Jew means to be a human raised to a higher plane. Right? The Jew is to demonstrate the highest capacities of the human being. So then you might think, again, what, you know, what happens to chosenness? Well, an amazing passage here. Um, from um, later on in the book of Shemos, when Hashem says that um, Moshe should say to Paro, Ko Omar Hashem, Bani Bechori Yisrael. Israel is my son, my firstborn. What does it mean? Of Hirsch writes as follows, the firstborn is not the one who is free and unfettered. That's not what it means. On the contrary, his duty is to be the first servant. Moreover, even among animals and plants, we find the Bechor. The form of the word is active, not passive. The Bechor is not the one who is set free, but the one who sets free. The forces of the womb, which heretofore have been restricted, are released and unfolded by him. He is Peter Rechem, the opener of the womb. He's a liberator. That's what Bechor means. Hence, when God says, Bani Bechori Yisrael, this means, with Israel, the womb of humanity will be opened. And here's my favorite phrase here. 
with Israel, the dance will begin. All the peoples are obligated to join him as my sons. I come to you in your own name and in the name of all humanity. Israel is my first, but not my only child. Israel is only the first people that I have won as mine. And that means that Israel's job, mission, is to be the liberator of humanity. So this is a very uh, important expression, I think, of Rav view. Okay, so that lays out, I think, the, uh, the core of Rav Hirsch's worldview. Uh, the Torah in Derech Eretz is a political view, and it's a view that's based on humanism. It's based on a, a, a religious humanism that sees the ideal Jew the, uh, as the ideal human being. And the Jew has the mission of demonstrating the true capacities of the human being to the rest of humanity so that humanity will eventually join. And everybody will um, worship the God of Israel. That's the, uh, the universalism and the humanism of Rav Hirsch's picture. So it's not primarily uh, educational. It's primarily about politics and character formation. And that character formation is guided by an ideal, the ideal of the Mensch Israel, the human Israelite. Okay, now, I said before though, that the, one should not take Rav Hirsch's interpretation of this, what I've said so far, to be the only possible one. And now I'm going to explain that. Um, here's the part of Rav Hirsch's view that leads him to his separatism. So now we're in um, Sefer Devarim, very famous Sukkim, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Morashaki Hilas Yaakov. Moshe commanded us the Torah as the heritage of the congregation of Jacob. There was a king in Yeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of, the, of Israel were together. Now, question about this Pasuk, which arises for any careful reader, what or who was the king? There was a king in Yeshurun. Who is it? Doesn't say. Now, one of the famous commentators, uh, Ibn Ezra says, it's Moshe. And that makes some sense because we do see Moshe being treated as a king in some literature. And uh, he's mentioned in the preceding Pasuk as well, right? Torah Tzivalanu Moshe. So Moshe is the subject of the second Pasuk by Hebishurin Melech. Um, Moshe was the king in Yeshurun. Uh, Rashi disagrees with that. And maybe this is part of a larger rabbinic disagreement about where, who's, who the real king is in general, whether it should be a human being or, or Hashem. Um, Rashi says it's Hashem. Even though Hashem is not mentioned here, the only real king is Hashem. So through Moshe, yes, but um, the, the, the king in Yeshurun is actually Hashem. Hirsch gives, a, 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 so far as I can see, an entirely original interpretation. Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Rav Hirsch says, this is the national credo, which is to be the heritage of Israel from generation to generation. This Torah is the Morasha, it's the real heritage, not the land and its bounty, but the Torah is the national heritage of Israel, the land and the power are only the conditional consequences of this heritage, right? So what defines the Jewish people, as Sajagon already said, is the Torah. It's a nation in virtue of the Torah. 
And then he says this, by Hebrew Melech, the Torah became king in Yishurim. Not Moshe, not Hashem, it's the Torah. And that also makes some sense because Torah was in fact also a subject of the previous Pasuk. It's certainly the word that came first. So it's a, a natural reading. The Torah became king in Yishurim. It alone is the reigning, commanding, and governing power in Israel. Even the kings in Israel were under its dominion. The king was to be only its very first model subject. By virtue of the reign of the Torah, Israel will become Yeshurun, suitable for the ideal of its moral calling. And he's referring that to the fact that the word Yeshurun is related to the word Yashar, which means upright, which he understands to be um, uh, to signify moral rectitude. So what makes the Jewish people is the Torah, and in particular, the sovereignty of the Torah. The Torah is king. And from this, Rav Hirsch draws two consequences with which the other leaders of German Jew Judaism disagree. The first is his extreme opposition to historical methods. As he understands it, the sovereignty of the Torah has an intellectual component. The Torah must be studied only with its own methods, not with the methods characteristic of the German universities of the time, where historical method had been developed. So the Torah must be the opposite of that. It must be completely timeless and eternal. No historical method must be used. And the other leaders of uh, German Judaism, in particular, um, Rav Hildesheimer and his followers did not agree with that. They were prepared to use some historical method, um, for example, to defend the Torah against certain kinds of biblical criticism. You had to use historical method, but they also present historical accounts of some aspects of rabbinic literature and so on. And they see no problem in also using um, historical methods. Um, the second consequence, and this is the one about which there was the most controversy, was separatism. The only community that counts as Kehilas Yaakov as a genuine Jewish community, according to Rav Hirsch, is a community that acknowledges the sovereignty of the Torah. If any community does not acknowledge the sovereignty of the Torah, it's not a real Jewish community. You have an obligation to separate from it and to establish a real Jewish community. That was the source of massive political arguments uh, among the Rabboni. So, um, and, and indeed, as I mentioned before, um, even in Rav Hirsch's own community, um, most of the uh, members refused to leave the regular Frankfurt Jewish community. And that was absolutely astonishing to Rav Hirsch. He fought for several decades to get the law passed that allowed Jews to leave the official community and start their own. And then when he finally got that law passed, he, two-thirds of his congregants said, we're not going to do it. And he saw this as a real betrayal. Um, now, um, here are some of the, the people who disagree with him. If you look at the right-hand side, there's no picture that I'm aware of. If anybody has found one, that would be great, of Rav Bamberger. Rav Bamberger was the main posek, the chief halachic authority of Germany in this period. And he was the Rav of Würzburg. He was the Würzburger Rav. Um, this is the area that my family is from as well, um, would be under his, uh, uh, under his authority. And what happened was um, the 
law was passed in 1876, as I mentioned, the separatist law that allowed um, people to separate from the community, but people didn't want to take advantage of it. And one of the people who did not want to take advantage of it was Ramosha Mainz, who was considered as the perhaps the greatest Talmud Chacham of Frankfurt at the time. And he davened in Rav Hirsch's shul. And yet he did not want to do what Rav Hirsch said. He felt that it wasn't necessary. And, that, and, and therefore, some people said, you know what, Rav Bamberger should talk to you about it. So Rav Bamberger visited Rav Moshe Mainz. And the exact opposite happened of what Rav Hirsch and his allies had wanted. Instead of convincing Rav Moshe Mainz that he should separate from the regular Frankfurt community, Rav Moshe Mainz persuaded Rav Bamberger that there was no need for separation. And that's because the general Frankfurt community had said, you know what, if you're so determined to have your own shul, you can have it and we will support you. We will provide the funds for your own shul. You can run it the way you want, do everything you want, but do it under the umbrella of the general Frankfurt community. And Rav Moshe Mainz said to Rav Bamberger, that's all we ever wanted. And if that's what they are allowing, then there's no need to separate. Rav Bamberger, to Rav Hirsch's horror, agreed and wrote publicly that his view was that it was unnecessary to separate from the community. And Rav Hirsch then uh, engaged in a, in a very uh, uh, heated polemic uh, about this question. Later on, um, Rabbi Marcus Horowitz, um, one of the closest students of Rav Hildesheimer, who I'll get to in a second, um, disagreed uh, also about separatism. And he accepted the position as the rabbi of the Orthodox shul within the general Frankfurt community. And that again was a major blow to Rav Hirsch. He felt this was a, a great betrayal and he disagreed strongly. Um, on the left-hand side, I have Rav Israel Hildesheimer and Rav David Svi Hoffman. And they disagreed with Rav Hirsch about the intellectual expression of the sovereignty of the Torah. Uh, as I mentioned, Rav Hirsch was opposed to the use of any historical method whatsoever, any academic version of Jewish studies. Um, there could only be um, a certain kind of Torah study, um, the kind that uh, uh, he engaged in himself that treated Torah as completely timeless and ahistorical. Um, Rav Hildesheimer was a close ally of Rav Hirsch in many respects. But he founded the uh, Rabbina Seminar, the rabbinical seminary in Berlin, uh, which did use some historical methods. And uh, he, when Rav Hirsch challenged him, he defended the institution, but he never articulated any general uh, philosophical approach that, that uh, justified it. The same with Rav David Svi Hoffman, who was a student of Rav Hildesheimer, who became uh, later on his successor as the rector of the rabbinical seminary of Berlin. Rav David Svi Hoffman had taught at Rav Hirsch's school in Frankfurt, and they were uh, they knew each other very well. Rav Hirsch respected him. So when Rav David Svi Hoffman started to write uh, historical studies of rabbinic literature and later on of um, the Chumash itself uh, in defense against biblical criticism, Rav Hirsch was horrified and he uh, also polemicized against them. So they disagreed with him. Um, so his is not the only version of Torim Derek Eretz. Um, I would distinguish between two different strands, you might say. 
you might call them right Hirschianism and left Hirschianism. So the one which is uh, Rav Hirsch's own view is what I call right Hirschianism. It emphasizes the sovereignty of the Torah and interprets it so that separatism and ideological purity follow from it. And what that led to was the idea that Torah in Derek Eretz really only applied with an easily integratable high culture. Um, and I think very often, because that's the view that Rav Hirsch and later his own family um, uh, really emphasized, and because separatism became such a charged political issue for them, that came to define the worldview of Torah in Derek Eretz, especially for those outside Germany. But there's also what I would call left Hirschianism. This would still emphasize the ideal of the human Jew, of the Mensch Yisrael, and the realizability of this ideal, even in situations where there might be friction with the surrounding culture. And this would be an anti-separatist view, one that engages with the non-observant um, Jewish community and, observe, and, and engages as fully as possible um, with, um, with um, the surrounding culture as well. And we don't really start to see an articulation of this until the 1920s. Rav Yitzchak Unner, who was um, in fact the grandson of Rav Bamberger, did start to give an account of the view that underlay the community orthodoxy, the minder orthodoxy, the um, unity, non-separatist view. Uh, and he published a few things about it. He argued that if separation had ever been necessary, that was in the past when there was a rebellion against uh, the uh, Jewish tradition, a rebellion against halacha, and this was no longer the case. Even if it was ever the case, it definitely was not the case by the 20th century. And instead of a separation principle of ideological purity, he proposed what he called a unity principle based on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, uh, which is about the Pasuk in Bayikra Kavav, the Kashlu the Gemara says, what does it mean that each person will stumble um, over the other? It means each through the other's sin. Everyone is a guarantor, each for the other. This is the principle of Arevus, of mutual responsibility, which becomes, in Rav Una's view, a unity principle. Now, he was addressing the inner Jewish issue of um, anti-separatism. He was trying to explain philosophically why Torah and Derek Eretz did not lead to separatism, but was in fact lead with the proper notion of the unity of the Jewish community to an anti-separatist view instead. He didn't then go on and explicitly explain the implications for engaging with the rest of the culture. But I think that that's something that could, that could be done. So I can uh, uh, conceive of and would personally uh, uh, be very sympathetic to what I'm calling a left Hirschian view uh, that would uh, uh, follow and develop what Rav Unner said in the 1920s. But it would also articulate the practice of Rav Bamberger and Rav Hildesheim. So this leads me finally to some questions leading, uh, uh, arising from what we've discussed for ethically engaged Jews today. So we've talked about the need for an ideal that guides character formation. What is the ideal that should guide character formation of Jewish youth today? I mean, character formation not to be reducible to education in the classroom. And should there be 
multiple ideals? Is there only one ideal? Um, we have the picture in much of Orthodox Judaism of a single ideal, which would be of someone who learns Torah um, all the time. Um, and anything short of that is understandable, but um, you know, that's the ideal. Well, the Mensch Yisrael, the, the, the ideal of Rav Hirsch is something rather different. Um, it's the full actualization of human capacities through Judaism. What constitutes a Jewish community? Should it express the sovereignty of Torah through the practice of arevos, of mutual responsibility? What does that look like? As opposed to the separatism that Rav Hirsch in fact endorsed and practiced, what does taking responsibility for each other uh, look like in practice? And then thirdly, what should we understand by the way of the land, Derech Eretz today? First of all, with whom do we share the land? The way that Rav Hirsch understood that makes a lot of sense in the 19th century, it's about the German national project and about nationalism uh, in European life at the time. Must we understand civil life in relation to the nation state? Must it be limited to fellow citizens or do we share the land with others who are not citizens as well? Um, secondly, can we formulate an account of responsibility not only for Jewish communal life, but also for civil life? Maybe that wouldn't be in terms of our ravis. Maybe that's not the right concept. Maybe that's a concept particular to Jews, but then in terms of the universal humanism of Judaism, as Rav Hirsch explained it in his commentary on the Chumash. And finally, if you go back to Rav Hirsch's explanation of Derech Eretz, it's not only about sharing the land, it's about living from the land. This raises the possibility of developing an environmental ethics. What is our responsibility to the land from which we live and which Hashem charged us of the Lashamra to work it and to preserve it. So those are questions that I'd like to, uh, to, to leave you with. And I'm happy now to, uh, to, to stop and to hear questions and have some discussion. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this very rich uh, presentation here. We would love to hear from others. If you'd like to unmute yourself, we would love to hear questions you might want to ask Professor Franks today. Yes, Janet. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Professor Franks. That was so fascinating. Uh, my family is from Germany. Uh, my father, Schwab, and my mother, Hessen, and they used to joke it was an intermarriage. Um, but what I really wanted to, to ask you about was this, Rav Hirsch, where, where was he pulling from? Was he influenced by, I'm assuming by, you know, other rabbis, scholars, and, or was this mostly his own philosophy? Yeah, thank you very much for the question. Well, he grew up in Hamburg, and that's actually quite important because the first major fight over the reform of the, um, of the synagogue service was in Hamburg, already in, in, in the 1810s. That's where the Hamburg temple was established and they published their own Siddur. Um, again, from contemporary point of view, the, the, the revisions seem fairly trivial, um, but it nevertheless set up a major, uh, set off a major political conflict. And it's in that context that his father, his grandfather of Mendel Frankfurter, who was in the area, um, helped to establish a, a new kind of school 
that would teach Torah im derech eretz. They used that slogan according to a tradition in the Hirsch family. And um, that it meant that they wanted to um, incorporate universal values and secular through secular education into the uh, into the school, but they didn't write any sort of philosophical account of what this new view was. They also hired in Hamburg in the Ashkenazi shul. You know, there's also a Sephardi shul there as well, um, a Western Sephardi tradition. But in the Ashkenazi shul, they hired a young and dynamic rabbi called Yitzhak Bernays who used the title Chacham, uh, the title used by the Spartan. And um, Rabbi Bernays was, one, was a, from the first generation of rabbis to have a university education. He was educated at the yeshiva of Würzburg by the predecessor of Rabbi Bamberger, um, Rabbi Avram Bing. Rabbi Avram Bing set up a, a, a new uh, program where people would um, study in the yeshiva and they would also go to classes at the university. They could not matriculate at the university. They weren't allowed to be students who could take degrees, but they were allowed to uh, sit in on the classes, to audit the classes. And the two of those earliest rabbis with university educations were Rav Bernays, um, who was a teacher of Rav Hirsch and um, Rav Yaakov, Ettinger, who um, also was a teacher of Rav Hirsch, after his, um, uh, his high school education, he went to study with him as well. So um, he was clearly influenced by those earlier figures, but they had not spelled out this worldview. They may have practiced it, but they didn't spell it out. And I also, as I said, I believe that he is very closely uh, responsive to the works of Rav Naftali Hertz Vesely, who was a close associate of um, Ramosha Dessau, Moses Mendelssohn. And um, as, I, as I said, there's a family tradition in the Hirsch family that, um, that, uh, there was, that he was held in high regard. And Rav Hirsch quotes him a number of times in his commentary on, on the Chumash as well. So I think those were the major influences on him. But it was also uh, a very politically charged situation in Hamburg, and I think that affected him, right? So he was a polemicist as well as a as a, a, a philosophical thinker. He was always a polemicist and, and a, a political activist as well. Oh, thank you. I'm just I'm just thinking kind of out loud, and it, it's not really foreign, but I'm wondering, since Hamburg was a Western Sephardic, you know, synagogues and and traditions as well. Do you think there's some overlap? It, it's seeming, you know, that Rav Hirsch's worldview is, is very compatible with, you know, um, Western Sephardic views. And I'm just wondering if there's any, you know, writings or anything that you may have seen along the way? Well, that's a really interesting question. I'm not aware of anything quite like that. Um, as I say, you can see with um, Rav Bernays, just the use of the title, that yeah. they thought that there was something um, somehow more westernized um, about the Sephardi tradition, and they felt that that version of traditional observance would be um, more attractive to the youth. Um, and it, it's also true that Rav Hirsch participated in, 
in um, sort of aesthetic uh, improvement, shall we say, of the synagogue service. But otherwise, I'm not I'm not aware of any other Western Sephardi influence. But thank you for the question. Thank you. Who else has a question here? Please don't be shy. Yes, Michael. Doing the, um, you know, this, this the question of sectism and, and involvement with the larger community and how, how is this impacted by the growth of the extreme anti-Semitism? You said through 38, it really started emerging, well, it was earlier, but in the, in the 20s and, and so dramatically developed in the 30s. Did that challenge, I mean, everyone was overwhelmed with survival, but did it challenge or change the discussion? Absolutely it did. And thank you very much for asking that question. I would go back a bit further, right? Immediately after the, uh, the unification of Germany and the extension of uh, the, the recognition of civil rights to all German Jews, uh, you, that's when the term anti-Semitism is first coined. Uh, because there's a backlash. And I guess, you know, we shouldn't be too surprised by that. That's the way things seem to go politically. So already when Jews um, believe in great uh, optimism that they are entering civil society on an equal footing and that they have all this opportunity, and to some extent they do, there's also a glass ceiling and there's also hatred. And what you see coming from that uh, already by... Uh, the pre-First World War period, but certainly between the wars, because, of course, um, the anti-Semitic backlash became much stronger with the terrible libel that the defeat of Germany in the First World War was somehow the fault of the Jews. Terrible, ridiculous libel, but uh, served its purpose. Um, you start to see Jews being uh, uh, disillusioned with the promise of citizenship and that very much affected the Torah in Derek Eretz community as well. And, and then you start to see the argument, well, Torah in Derek Eretz as a kind of you know, full engagement with German culture, that made a lot of sense when Rav Hirsch said it, because then it was engagement with this wonderful high culture of Goethe and Schiller and so on. Um, but now the culture has become debased and we don't want any part of it. And, and I mentioned that Rav Shimon Schwab um, who eventually became the Rav of uh, the Frankfurt Shul transplanted to Washington Heights in New York um, in the 1920s when he was in yeshiva in Lithuania, raised questions about whether the whole thing was a good idea at all. And he was clearly part of that generation that was disillusioned with German culture as it was. Later on, he changed his mind to some extent, though, only to some extent. Uh, after the war, he did endorse Rav Hirsch's view, and if he hadn't endorsed it, he could never have become the rabbi of that shul. Um, but if you read his writings, he basically says, the, you know, we're living in an age when culture is debased, so therefore we should only engage with mathematics and natural science, and not with the humanities at all, um, because uh, we have to stay away from all that. So I, I still don't think that he ever really fully accepted uh, the, the, the view of Rav Hirsch that I've articulated here. But yes, there was a lot of disillusionment with German culture and because of the anti-Semitism. Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for this wonderful presentation, Professor Franks. Um, and thank you all so much for joining and engaging with us. You're welcome to join us again on Monday.
with Johnny Schnitzer on the Hasidic story, A New Window to God, and many other programs. Wishing everyone a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you.